1: Russia launching more than 150 rockets and drones in this attack that went on for some 10 hours. Ukraine's Air Force says that it is the largest attack on the country since the start of the full-scale invasion. And this, of course, comes as the U.S. has just announced a $250 million aid package for Ukraine. But 2024 promises to be another difficult year as Ukraine pleads for more support. From the West. Yeah, good
2: afternoon, friends. Happy Friday. Welcome aboard Rob Breckenridge with you here as we get set to close out 2023, our final show of 2023. And yes, let's begin with the news out of Ukraine as we get closer to the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, Russia launching, uh, at last count, we believe uh, 122 missiles and 36 drones across Ukraine, uh, striking in civilian areas, striking a maternity hospital, striking an apartment building. Uh, Ukraine's Air Force says they've never seen so many locations targeted simultaneously. So it's certainly a reminder uh, of the challenge that Ukraine still faces uh, in fending off this Russian invasion. Whether this marks any kind of an escalation on Putin's part, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, But this conflict uh, does continue to to drag on here, unfortunately, as we get into uh, the third year. Uh, of this conflict joining us uh, for some thoughts on, on all of this very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon Earl uh, braun professor of international relations and political science at the university of toronto also an associate with the davis center at harvard university professor braun good to have you with us here welcome to the program thank you first of all let's talk about the missile attacks today just uh, you know in terms of sheer numbers it's it's quite something what's its uh, signal or signify to you
3: russia is sending messages to the domestic population in Russia that they're winning. They are testing Ukraine and they are testing the West. This was a vast attack that has resulted, according to the latest reports from Kiev, in at least 30 people uh, dying. It's a a terrible loss. Uh, There were targets that were civilian as as well as military industrial targets. The uh, manufacture of uh, missiles and aircraft parts in kiev uh the autumn factory was also hit but this was meant uh both to inflict pain but also to terrorize ukraine to test the west uh to tell the west that russia will continue fighting and that putin is not giving up
2: (laughs) Well, that much is clear. I mean, you know, certainly this this war has come at a tremendous cost to Russia, both in terms of the the financial cost of waging this war and the the toll that this has inflicted on on a generation of young Russian men. But uh, Putin seems, uh, you know, determined to see this through, whatever that is.
3: He doesn't have much choice because of the kind of regime that he runs, he cannot afford to lose. If he loses, he's gone. Uh, He's not going to get to retire and write his memoirs. In this kind of system you either win or you have no uh, uh, back, uh, uh, backup plan. There's no plan B to this. And so even if he doesn't win in our terms, he has to be able at least to pretend that he is winning. This is a repressive regime. This is a tyranny. And what we see is that tyrannies and terrorists are testing democracies. They are testing our endurance. Are we going to continue to support other democracies? Are we going to support Ukraine? And we know that uh, the support that Ukraine was counting on, there's something like $50 billion that was to be allocated in the United States. That is being held up. And uh, Vladimir Putin uh, may not be able to win in real terms, but he believes that the West can lose. <laughs>
2: Well look I mean if as you say we're at a bit of a tipping point here in terms of, of providing support to Ukraine. I mean absent that support, you know a Russian victory could could very much materialize.
3: It wouldn't be so much as Russia winning as the West and Ukraine losing right So far, if you look at it objectively, Russia has done terribly. This has been a strategic disaster for Russia. We know from various intelligence sources that now have uh, leaked uh, a lot of material to the media, that at least 315,000 Russian soldiers have either been killed or severely wounded uh, to the extent that they cannot participate. This is an enormous loss. This means that Russia has lost more soldiers in ukraine that in all of the conflict that it has participated in since the end of the second world war we know that today's attack for which they seem to have saved up uh, a lot of these missiles uh, these uh, missiles 158 missiles and drones together would have cost at least 1.2 billion dollars they can't afford to keep doing that but what putin is counting on and what terrorists around the world are counting on including terrorist regimes such, such as iran the west doesn't have the endurance that the west is not willing to step up on a sustainable basis and that the west which to vladimir putin and to Islamists is morally corrupt the west will just fall apart and that is the only way they can win otherwise russia does not have the capacity to do so they do not have the resources but there are all sorts of negative indications inside russia some mothers are protesting that their sons are uh, being drafted, that they're being killed. Uh, hundreds of thousands of young Russians, some of the brightest uh, in the country, have left because they do not want to be drafted into a military, which is a high likelihood that they would be either killed or wounded. So there are enormous problems within Russia, and the only way they can prevail is if we if we give up. Basically, if we give up on Ukraine.
2: Right. And Russia prevailing in Ukraine does not mean an end to conflict, I don't think. And I think there's some real concern about uh, where Putin might set his sights next. So to to think that that Russia winning somehow equals peace, what what are your concerns about European security if Russia can claim some victory here?
3: Well, you are entirely correct, because with the kind of regime that Russia runs, where there is no real domestic legitimacy, uh, the economy is not performing well, uh, the uh, uh, Russian... uh, uh, population uh, uh, is uh, uh, normally giving support to Putin, but in reality, they are very concerned about this kind of conflict. So Vladimir Putin has to look for external wins. And we should remember that when he started this war, he wasn't just demanding that basically Ukraine give up and that he would take over the country under the myth that uh, he was trying to denazify and to demilitarize uh, Ukraine, and Ukraine was not a real country. But he also said that he wanted basically to roll back NATO, that the enlargement of NATO post-1997, that had to be reversed in steps. So if somehow Vladimir Putin were to succeed in Ukraine, if Ukraine would collapse, then he has far larger ambitions, and those ambitions uh, then would... uh, confront the West in a way in which we would have very little choice. But once NATO countries are involved, then we have Article 5. And now we know that Finland is part of uh, NATO. And the Russians have moved uh, a very large number of up pieces up against the border of Finland. They are threatening Finland. Sweden is on the verge of getting into NATO, provided that Erdogan finally stops his uh, blackmail of NATO. And so they're on the line as well. And I think uh, Russian victory would not be the end of the conflict. It would likely be the beginning of larger conflicts.
2: Conversely, though, if, if Ukraine gets the supported needs, you needs, know, how realistic is, is Ukrainian victory? What, what does that look like?
3: It's a good question because this is where there's a lot of debate. Would it mean taking back all of the territory? Mm-hmm. Would it mean that Russia would come to a peace table, humiliated, and and, and basically uh, accepting whatever terms are imposed? Or would it be that at some point Ukraine would get back most of its territory, get to join NATO, uh, and then Vladimir Putin would try to somehow uh, massage the message and try to claim some victory by holding on to parts of Crimea? And would that be still a win uh, for Ukraine? I think even in such a situation, Uh, the Putin regime ultimately would collapse Mm -hmm. because the people in Russia would realize that they have lost an enormous number of lives and a huge amount of treasure for what? For nothing. And uh, even if Ukraine is just able to sustain itself at the current level and continue to inflict the very heavy losses on on Russia, eventually uh, the Russian will to continue and the ability to do so may may dissipate let's not forget that dictatorships tend to look very strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong and stable so there may be far more vulnerability in the case of russia uh more than 600 days after the this conflict they have not managed to conquer ukraine in fact ukraine has taken back about half of the territory that russia had taken over after the attack the second invasion of ukraine in february of last year and they continue to inflict a huge amount of uh, damage on russia but they need to be resupplied they need to have the economic aid the west has to step up and if we don't do that then what so far has been a disaster for russia and of course a horrible tragedy for ukraine that uh uh may uh it may be all lost because uh, uh, Vladimir Putin cannot afford to give up.
2: We'll see what the new year brings us. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Braun, I always do appreciate the insight. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. All the best, sir. Uh, that is Orel Braun, uh, professor at the University of Toronto, also an associate with the Davis Center at Harvard University. Some thoughts on what uh, transpired today in uh, Ukraine and, and what 2024 has in store as we approach the second anniversary of this invasion. Uh, it is indeed our final show of 2023. We've got a lot to get to here this afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. That's 974-TALK. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this.
0: Working to develop a, a plan that will pull together the measures we've announced and the next uh, measures we will announce uh, into a, a single place for Canadians to see the, the full renewed uh, approach to addressing the housing crisis.
2: That was uh, Housing Minister Sean Fraser today speaking with Canadian press on some kind of ancient speakerphone or something. But anyway, talking about uh, plans due to, to unveil, um, I guess, an updated. Uh, housing or a renewed housing plan. And certainly we've seen a a spate of announcements recently from the government. And sometimes those announcements get reannounced a a few times. But there's definitely been uh, more of a shift in focus recently. And I think a lot of that, uh, you know, traces back to, to when Sean Fraser was first put in there as housing minister. And, and the government recognizing that they really needed to, to get to work on this file. Uh, the housing minister also talking about uh, how Ottawa does need to deal with what's been an influx in temporary residents.
0: The uh, first instance, in my view, should involve working in partnership with provincial governments and with institutions to address this challenge. Uh, but I think we should reserve the right to take additional steps should they be necessary.
2: Okay, so that's that going to be something to watch. Um, I mean, that's been a big part of the population growth recently uh, is the influx in temporary residents. That might include temporary foreign workers or students, uh, others who are coming here, though, and they're not citizens or, or permanent residents. But look, I mean, you know, the population's growing rapidly. We really haven't, uh, I think, fundamentally addressed uh, the disconnect between housing supply and demand. So what should we be looking for in 2024? Have we seen anything in 2023 that, that might help us uh, on this path? Well, someone who's been watching uh, this debate, writing a lot about the housing issue uh, over the last year or two, is uh, policy analyst Steve LaFleur, who joins us on the line here this afternoon. Steve, good to have you with us. Welcome back to the program.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, so first of all what what do you make of, you know, Sean Fraser? I mean, it does seem like since he became the Housing Minister, you know, there's at least been more of an attempt to focus on this issue. Have you have you noticed a change?
0: Yeah. So, uh ever since Minister Fraser took over, there has been a change, uh both in terms of communication, but also crucially, I think in the way that they've dealt with municipalities. Um, you know, the big the big tool that they have, the Housing Accelerator Fund. Yeah. Um basically it's a, uh, you know, It seemed like it was going to be a pretty traditional grant program where municipalities come and you know give a bare minimum offer and the federal government would choose from the least bad of the options to fund them and cut a ribbon and so forth but actually the new minister is not having that and in fact has been getting on the bully pulpit and telling municipalities do better in your application Uh, so it has resulted in some real meaningful policy changes unfortunately they take quite a long time to really materialize
2: well, I, yeah, that's been the frustrating thing I think with this debate is that uh, for all the announcements and photo ops we've seen uh, in recent months, we haven't really seen any change. Is it is it unrealistic to think that are that there are quick fixes available?
0: Well, you know, in good times, and they're in good times, and in terms of like viability of construction, it's not realistic for like quick changes. This is actually a pretty rough time for development because of you know tight financial conditions. You know, we just came out right. of. A global pandemic we've got a shooting war in europe you know these things have placed real burdens on the economy and central banks around the world have had to restrict lending so when you have those headwinds coming up against you know more liberalization of housing they kind of come out of wash um so at least for now it might look like it's not achieving anything but in the long term a lot of these reforms will help a lot
2: well, we still have the disconnect between supply and demand. Uh, you know, are we going to eventually have to, to address demand, or, or do you think we can fix this problem by just doing it right on, on the supply side?
0: You know, the frustrating thing is I spent probably, you know, the better part of, I'd say, eight years jumping up and down, telling people, you know, stop focusing on all these little demand side things, you know, foreign buyers, speculators. This is, this is the froth on the waves. Mm-hmm. What really matters is the number of houses that get built. Unfortunately, nothing changed on that front, and they tried all these little gimmicks now, with the combination of you know getting distracted by all these little you know at the margins things and not really doing anything up until you know very recently to make home building more viable now we 're in a difficult situation where we 've got such a backlog of housing that there's not really a great option um, you know. Sure, we probably have to slow down certain uh, incoming streams, for instance, temporary foreign workers, uh, maybe some categories of of foreign students. Um, But, you know, there's no easy fix. I mean, we also need more labor. we were in a tight labor market. Um, The industry, the the construction industry, can't just double housing starts with our existing population unless all of a sudden a lot of people, you know, drop their keyboards and pick up hammers. probably not going to happen.
2: Well, no, it's not I mean, can we at least you know use uh, the tools in the immigration system to prioritize those those skills?
0: You know it's something a lot of people talk about. It's something the government and you know provincial governments and and the federal government have talked about I, I hope they can um, but you know again, it takes time you know you need to if, you, if you're if you're relying on immigration to backlog labor force, you know it's not always a matter of just somebody gets on a plane and the next day they're you know swinging hammers. It's, often takes some time to get through the process and to you know, settle in the country, get a job, et cetera. Um, but it, it has to happen. And that's kind of the, the trick right now is that, you know, even if we bring people to do more construction, they need somewhere to live, too. So there's a little bit of a catch-22 in the short term.
2: There does seem to be a recognition, at least, that this is a major issue. And, you know, the Conservatives have really tried to, you know, focus on this issue. And their leader has talked about some different approaches that they would employ. I think that's kind of prompted the Liberals into taking action in some of the policies you mentioned. So, I mean, does that help? I mean, you know, politics can, can you know, taint any sort of debate, including this one. But to at least have the major parties acknowledging the problem, putting ideas forward, is, is it a net positive?
0: I'll be optimistic on this. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the optimistic case. So, you know, you go back 18 months or so, it was controversial, the idea that the federal government would really get involved in housing policy. Now, all of a sudden, it's, it's gotten to the point where everybody kind of recognizes that we're not doing enough. So that's a good starting point. You know, it means that we're not gonna get bogged down in all of these little details about, you know, whether somebody's gonna have too much shade on their garden and so forth, if we build a of uh, a, a apartment. So that certainly is a good starting point, and I do think that it's also encouraging that you see some competition among governments. So it started out, you know, arguably with, you know, how, um, sorry, Nova Scotia and Ontario making some small but meaningful first steps. And then you see the federal government come in and making some medium to large moves. And then you see the provincial government of B.C., for instance, actually getting really serious about housing reform. So I'm encouraged by that, and I think we will continue to see this kind of competition for better policy, because the problem is not only getting worse in the GTA and the Lower Mainland, but it's spread out to places. I mean, you know, when I lived in Calgary in 2016, it was extremely easy and cheap to find an apartment. Uh-huh. Not so much today. So it's, it's getting recognition everywhere, and I, I'm optimistic because of that.
2: Yeah, we we've certainly seen a, a lot of these these debates happening here in Calgary, and I mean Calgary applied and, and received some funding under the Housing Accelerator Fund. We see some zoning changes uh, approved here. We're still seeing a lot of construction. There's been new new neighborhoods approved, so we're, we're seeing all of that. So it's kind of a microcosm, I guess, of all of these issues. But I did want to get to something you you just wrote about this week, and it's the question of as we move to to build more housing, what kind of housing are we building, and and does it match with people's aspirations? Like, is is the dream of the suburban life is that in jeopardy is is that on its way out what about the future of of the suburb and all of this
0: you know i think i think people overplay that a little bit you know there's it is true that we have focused a lot of construction briefly on high-rise apartments, but you know not everybody wants to live in a high-rise apartment you know i i've spent a lot of my adult life in, in high-rise apartments. i live in a six-story apartment now you know, that's great for me. It's not necessarily what everybody wants. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, whether whether some people like it or not, we're going to build more suburbs. The question, though, is what they're going to look like. And I think that the days of the kind of car-only suburbs are coming to an end, largely because, frankly, I think a lot of people don't necessarily want that. I think a lot of that is just a product of, like, heavy-handed government. You know, we've we've had kind of moderately dense mixed-use housing since the dawn of human civilization. It really took governments and central planners and governments to invent the car-only suburbs. And I think that, frankly, a lot of people, especially younger people, are rejecting that. They want more options. You want to be able to walk to the store to get a, get a carton of milk instead of having to you know, get in your car and fight traffic for that.
2: Right, and that, that's kind of the vision. I mean, it's its taken a weird turn, you know, this whole debate around 15-minute communities and what that actually means. Uh, but the idea that you at least have in, in newer neighborhoods these kinds of amenities that people don't have to travel far to get to, that that's kind of what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and especially, you know, think about the work-from-home era. You know, so many people spend so much time at home and, you know, just want to get up and stretch their legs. And, you know, I... I can walk out, I can get coffee at six different places within 15 minutes with no problem, or I can go and do my groceries in 10 minutes. Um, I think that's what probably most people want. Now, most people probably want to marry that in the backyard. That probably means we need to do things like have more townhouses, have more, you know, small walk-up apartments and kind of like multiplexes like you see in Montreal. Um, That's all, those are all things we can do now that we are legalized, because these types of housing were illegal in nearly the entire landmass of Canada up until frankly this year uh so as we legalize more options i think we're going to see more variety and we're going to reimagine what the suburbs look like
2: we'll see what 2024 has in store on on this policy front steve appreciate the insight thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon
0: thank you for having me always a pleasure
2: likewise all the best uh steve lafleur public policy analyst columnist based in toronto uh his sub stack it's north of bloor dot c a b l o o r north of bloor uh, his interesting piece on the idea of the the, the car oriented suburb what does the future look like for those kinds of neighborhoods so it's an interesting question in terms of where that's all going uh, but definitely i think we're going to need all, all kinds of new housing if we've got room for cities to grow and new neighborhoods to be built let's do that if we can densify and, and add more of that let's let's do that too Yes, indeed. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program, our final hour here today, our final hour this week, our final hour uh, 2023, as um, we welcome in the new year on Monday. So a long weekend uh, for us, I suspect probably for you. And then we get back to normal in 2024 on Tuesday. You can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. Look, 2023 has been a year of pretty massive population growth. Uh, in fact uh, the most recent quarterly numbers so the third quarter of this year Canada's population grew by more than 430,000 that's just in one quarter of one year and it doesn't appear as though this is going to be slowing down anytime soon so we'll see what the longer term looks like in terms of uh, immigration policy uh, but definitely Canada's population is growing and growing at the fastest rate that it's grown in decades and and that growth is being driven almost entirely by immigration there really isn't much uh, of a growth uh, rate coming from from Canada's birth rate that's not really contributing as maybe we've seen in the past Uh, so that's where this uh, growth is coming from and as we talked about that's obviously putting price uh, price pressure uh, on housing Uh, there's a lot of demand not enough supply and we're really struggling to figure out with ways of adding to that supply or getting it to where it needs to. But there are a lot of other implications from all of this. So some new research from the Association for Canadian Studies kind of puts some of this in, in perspective here. Like the population that uh, – or the possibility that a population could double over the next 25 years, which is crazy to think. Uh, As soon as 2041, for example, most Canadians will be either immigrants or the children of immigrants. 25 years from now, up to half of Canadians may identify as racialized or visible minority. So some demographic shifts are coming. That may have other implications in terms of our national identity and whatnot. Uh, So joining us for more on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jack Jedwab, the president and CEO of the Association for Canadian Studies. And they commissioned the survey and some of this analysis uh, in conjunction with the Metropolis Institute. uh, ACS-Metropolis.ca can read more there. Uh, Jack Jedwab, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
1: Uh, thank you. My pleasure.
2: Let's put, first of all, this growth in context. I mean, it's been a long time since Canada's population has grown this fast. How do you describe it?
1: Right. This is uh, record levels of growth. Uh, StatCan has said that that 12-month period uh, to July 2023, uh, July 2022 to uh saw growth that was unprecedented uh, We've not seen such growth since 1957 at the height of the baby boom, Uh, and it's indicating that if we continue along this particular pace, or if you like the rhythm of the growth, then uh, we could see the cane population doubling in 25 years. Uh, That's that's StatsCan's projections, and uh, uh, my own sort of projections based on uh, some of the estimates they've offered uh, suggest that uh, their continued updating of their own uh, forecasts Uh, isn't keeping pace with how fast our population is growing. So they have to, as they did in 2022, revise the forecast based on the current levels of immigration, which are above 500,000, not counting temporary migrants, international students, etc. So uh, we're looking at vast population growth.
2: Right, and that's now almost entirely then immigration, isn't it? We don't have really anything resembling a baby boom at the moment.
1: No, exactly. Uh, Our... uh, fertility rate has been stable but declined uh, over the past few decades and now that it's relatively stable uh, that it doesn't lead to uh, population renewal in any meaningful sense. All of our population growth, nearly all, will depend on the level of immigration. And since we've seen a big spike in immigration levels, particularly coming out of the pandemic, uh, we're seeing really quick turnaround in terms of our population growth that, as I said, beyond what StatsCan has projected uh, and requiring StatsCan revise its projections to uh, give us a better idea of what the population will look like in a decade or two decades or more. Right. And I mean, it, it could double
2: uh, over the next few decades here.
1: Uh, if stats can, uh, it's, as stats can suggest, if things remain constant, if we're seeing that sort of population growth at the levels we're currently seeing, it could double, which is interesting because we've got an organization out there called Century Initiative uh, whose objective is by 2100 for us to reach 100 million and a lot mm-hmm. of. People might have thought that was far-fetched five years ago, uh, but it seems like that objective is uh, uh, much more likely to be attained well before uh, 2100 uh, if we continue to uh, grow at the current pace that we are.
2: It's interesting because Canada's always been a country where, you know, it's immigrants, children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants. But, you know, if we look at the pace of, of this population growth, what's driving that population growth, it's not going to be long, is it, before perhaps even a majority of Canadians are, are immigrants or, or first-generation Canadians?
1: Right. I mean, at this rate, uh, within, say, 10, 15 years, the 50% or thereabouts of the population will be first and second generation combined, that is to say, immigrants and children of immigrants. Uh, I think the most modest... Uh, projection would have us reaching that uh, level by 2031. So mm-hmm. that's less than 10 years where we're looking at, say, 25% of our population being foreign-born and another 25% of the population being uh, children of persons that are foreign-born. So that would be half of our population. Uh, that's remarkable growth when you think uh, that in 2011, the two groups combined represented under 40% of the population.
2: So that would be a big demographic change, wouldn't it?
1: Uh, I would describe it as a demographic revolution. We're seeing the country uh, uh, in terms of its demographic composition, in terms of its size, uh, be transformed in a relatively short uh, space of time, given that the interest on the part of many people around the world to come to this country is very high. And uh, we uh, believe that our economic prosperity depends on immigration, uh, that... uh, We'll we'll continue to see those changes, uh, and we'll need to think about what that implies in terms of the resources at our disposal to uh, welcome those numbers of immigrants. Uh, Our geography outside of our large cities, to the extent that we can uh, see a bit more distribution of uh, the newcomer population uh, across our geography, Uh, those are all challenges uh, that we'll need to meet if Indeed, we continue along this uh, pace.
2: Right. And that's a big challenge. I mean, you know, it's, you know, we're a big country in terms of total geographic space, but that population is really concentrated. So, I mean, if, if Canada's population doubles, does that imply that, well, that means Toronto's population doubles? Or does it mean that we see smaller cities become big cities? And, and who decides that?
1: Yeah, those are questions I need. I think we'll need to think about. We probably need to think about them sooner rather than later. Our you know main focus right now in terms of space seems to be on the housing situation and what can be accommodated in terms of uh, our uh, current, uh, uh, if you like, uh, housing uh, supply or, or capacity. Uh, but you know there are other issues that need to be thought about beyond housing issues uh, if we continue to move forward in the direction that we are relative to population growth. Uh, one of which you mentioned is our whole idea of urban space I and mean, we 're seeing a lot of movement of people beyond those urban centers uh, into the suburbs or the regional peripheries, if you like. Uh, but we need to think about what that means in terms of infrastructure issues in those areas. Uh, and uh, have, have a different type of vision, perhaps, of the country in that regard. I don't know that we're thinking all that through carefully right now. As I said, we're very focused on the issue of housing. That makes a lot of sense. You know, housing is crucial to people. But there's a broader reflection that needs to be uh, undertaken if indeed we continue along the course we are. And, and we seemingly do appear to be on that course.
2: You know, the other question in this report, and it speaks to all of these changes, is what it means for Canada, what it means for our our national identity. What's the sense uh, of the implications on that side?
1: Uh, Well, we're going to be increasingly diverse in terms of the composition of our population. We'll see a a far greater percentage of people that identify as vis-minority or racialized, uh, those are the sort of more common terms used to describe persons who are don't identify as as white. And we'll see uh, considerable change in that regard. We've already seen uh, much change that way. Uh, most of our immigration uh, identifies as visible minority. So there'll be a lot of, I think, uh, evolution in terms of the way we address these issues around discrimination, around uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. Those the kind of terminology that we're seeing increasingly used uh, as we think about our society going forward and how we can ensure that Uh, people can fully participate uh, in Canadian society and do so in a way that uh, minimizes uh, any uh, discrimination or obstruction. Ideally, we want to eliminate any discrimination towards people of different backgrounds. But those issues will likely become even more uh, critical as we go forward and our population evolves.
2: Indeed. Well, much more than all of this. As mentioned, the Association of Canadian Studies and the Metropolis Institute. It's acs-metropolis.ca. Uh, Jack, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this.
1: Thank you, and have a great 2024.
2: Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob, at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.